everybody. Welcome to another edition of Tim's Takeaway. Again, my name is Tim Wrights, and today we are going to deviate away from the clinical aspects of EMS. And today we're going to bring in a little bit of, oh my goodness, it's time for student remediation. So this kind of focuses in on the educator aspect of things, but fret not, if you are a current EMT, AEMT, EMR, or paramedic student, this could also be something that you may find useful. You know, as an EMS educator, I am often asked by students, what should I study? What is it that I absolutely need to know for the registry exam? Is one book better than the other? Well, that of course is a loaded question. My first answer is you need to know everything that is in the book. The reality though is the student must be able to apply the information that he or she has learned in the class. It is easier said than done. Now at the same time, I have been contacted by those still seeking their state certification after taking the cognitive or what's commonly referred to as the written exam three times. Like other educators, these aspiring EMS providers may not have been one of my program's former students, so therefore I'm kind of at a disadvantage. I'm not quite sure how to help them out and where to start. So what are we to do? How can we help these individuals who are asking us for help? Well, in this episode, there's going to be a group of things that we need to take a look at. We need to look at the EMS education standards, the National EMS Scope of Practice, which at the recording of this podcast just changed. We're going to talk about the National Registry Computer Adaptive Exam, the National Registry Practice Analysis, the EMS Model Clinical Guidelines, some feedback that students or candidates can receive from the National Registry exam. And then, of course, we're going to just briefly dabble into Bloom's taxonomy as it relates to knowledge, application, and problem solving. Well, there's a lot to cover, and hopefully we get through everything. Something tells me that as I'm making this podcast that I bet we get through it all. Needless to say, some of these subject matters could actually be spun off so if you're looking for a little more information in something that you hear here today that didn't make a whole lot of sense, but you get the message, let me know. Yeah, just respond back. Let me know, and uh, we'll hopefully make sure that we can improve our podcasting to you. So uh, where in the world do they get these questions from that are on the National Registry exam? Well, you know all those documents I just mentioned? That is where the main source of information comes from. Now, I can spend some time talking about the details of how a question is developed, reviewed, rated, piloted, analyzed from a psychometrical standpoint, adjusted, medically approved, blueprinted, and then launched as a question for an exam. But I don't think that's why you're here. That's not why you're listening. But by the way, this is a good time to bring up two things. Number one, as an EMS provider, an instructor, medical director, you have the ability to head on over to 
nremt.org and sign up to volunteer for the National Registry Projects. These things include cognitive and psychomotor exam development, publication and software review, as well as the practice analysis. The authors of the questions are truly from the EMS community. Then the staff and the experts from the National Registry take that question through the remainder of the verification process. If you're interested in authoring questions that are preparing students for taking some standardized certification exams, send me a message so that you can be notified of a test item writing learning session that I may be conducting. You can drop me a message at timr2715 at me.com. Once again, that is timr2715 at me.com. And when I get that information, uh, we'll make sure that we send some information out to you. So anyway, going back to this whole thing that there is no one book that the National Registry utilizes for their exam questions. Ever since I was a provider, there were always, well, I'm still a provider, ever since I was a student, there were rumors which always occur in EMS. And they were saying, buy this product, Tim, because this is what the registry uses for their exams. Well, that's all hogwash. In fact, when gathering the basis of a question, it's not from a book at all. They get it from the same place, the publishers and the authors of the books that you most likely used in class actually do as well. They start with the EMS education standards. Now, the current version of the EMS education standards can be found at www.ems.gov. And when you actually take a look at what the education standards are now, when you compare to maybe the 1994 curriculum for EMT or the 1995 curriculum for first responder or maybe even the 1998 curriculum for paramedic or the 99 curriculum for intermediate EMT, you're going to notice that there's a lot of differences. So those experienced instructors may find huge differences if they played with those curriculums before. Because the National Standard Curriculum provided a descriptive step-by-step -step process that instructors across the nation were expected to follow. Now, this process was identified by many as being very cumbersome and too strict to really address issues that may be occurring at the state or local level. Now, this all changed as a result of documents like the EMS Education Agenda for the Future. Now, this document called for more instructor involvement as the amount of knowledge necessary to perform a task or a skill. So when the 2009 EMS education standards were published, there were four instructional guides which were released to help in this transition. Now these instructional guides were for EMR, EMT, AEMT, and paramedic. Now this instructional guide or these instructional guides were only a resource to help teach some depth and breadth of the material. But the EMS education standards are really the gold standard. They are what we have to take a look at and make sure that as instructors, as educators, that we are covering in all of our provider courses. To quote from the EMS education standards themselves, 
Quote, the standards define the competencies, clinical behaviors, and judgments that must be met by entry-level EMS personnel to meet practice guidelines defined in the National EMS Scope of, scope of Practice Model. End quote. So then what does this mean? Well, it means that the education standards outline what the minimal competencies are to be for those areas, EMR, EMT, AMT, and paramedic. Now, each level builds upon the previous level. Much like a house has a foundation built, um, you know, first, and then the rest of the house is built upon that foundation. So the house will only be as strong as that foundation. So as an example, if you take a look at something like pharmacology, at the EMR level, there's really no knowledge that may be necessary for some principles of pharmacology. However, they do expect some simple knowledge of some medications that they may self-administer or administer to a peer. Now, what does that mean? That means that if maybe that EMR was exposed to a NBC-type issue, weapon of mass destruction, could they actually use that medication on themselves or their partner? And what information do they really need to know about that? That's where we start to come from. That then builds upon the EMT then saying that we need to look at fundamental knowledge of the medications that the EMT may assist or administer to a patient during an emergency. The AEMT then says that, you know what, they have to be able to apply patient assessment and management. They have to have fundamental knowledge of the, of the medications carried by them and that they may be administered to a patient during an emergency. Now, the paramedic level is going to take all of those previous three and they're going to integrate comprehensive knowledge of pharmacology to formulate a treatment plan and it's intended to mitigate emergencies and improve the overall health of the patient. So just describing or reading out of page 15 of the EMS education standards for pharmacology, we're building upon each previous version. So by the time the paramedic is there, they should not only know how to administer peer medications to each other, they should know what they're about, and that they have to be able to take a look at the comprehensive patient. They have to look at the patient as a whole. So this is where differences are going to emerge between a novice and an expert instructor. A novice will simply recite the information from the publisher. An expert is going to review the standards to assure that the student is not only has the proper breadth and depth of information, but also has the ability to determine what additional information needs presented for a specific geographical area. It is the educational institution's responsibility to prepare competent entry-level providers. Now, to accomplish this, it does mean some local information needs presented. This requires that the instructor has a clear working understanding of action verbs, which are going to be necessary for how the student must engage with this information. 
Now, these action verbs are not just created out of thin air. No, these action verbs are pulled from objectives which are outlined in several documents which truly use Bloom's taxonomy to describe the level of cognitive, their knowledge, psychomotor, their skill, and affective, meaning their behavior, and how those things are going to be addressed. Now, additionally, the area addressing these major areas must be tested on for cognitive ability. Now, this includes the knowledge application or problem solving area. Now, the application and problem solving areas are the area that is commonly referred to as Bloom's Higher Order Thinking or HOT, H-O-T. Now, traditionally, teachers in K-12 and post-secondary instructors often only taught to the low end of that. They taught to the lower order thinking or in, in looking at more of the knowledge. So let me give you a quick example about that. You take medical terminology. Medical terminology is going to be essentially knowledge, but when you use the terms such as bilateral, the patient has bilateral breath sounds or the patient has unilateral breath sounds on the left. Does the student grasp what is going on? If they don't, there is a huge difference between how they apply their knowledge to that information that's in the test question versus just simply reciting what does bilateral mean. Now, in today's world, oftentimes what is occurring is we spend more time on the lower order thinking. As an instructor who is going to potentially remediate a student, the candidate has to recognize and be prepared to answer the higher level questions. Just because someone who is a current EMS provider help someone study does not mean that this individual will be able to help prepare the candidate for what is expected in today's exam. One way to prepare for higher order thinking questions is to not shortcut the clinical or field experiences and likewise doing or shortcutting any of the scenario based labs. This also means that the instructors need to have the ability to transfer this information from blooms to some actionable activities in the classroom. Again, this is not the purpose of this episode, but again, it's probably one that needs to be addressed for another time and really requires people to be pulled into a workshop and work on these things. So let's look at some other sources for exam content. Now, every few years, the National Registry conducts a practice analysis, and this is done about every five years. The information helps determine the frequency of tasks, skills, or operational areas of EMS. Now, each category is identified for its importance and potential harm to the patient or the provider. This then lends or leads to helping the National Registry create the testing blueprint. So each area is then broken down into sections and then tasks. So as an example, in the 2014 National Registry Practice Analysis, in Appendix C, the Airway Respiratory and Ventilation section identified seven tasks 
that the candidate is expected to be able to um, assess. And also describe the pathophysiology and management. So they're expected to identify, um, assess, and describe the pathophysiology and how to manage an airway, ventilation, respiratory distress, failure, and arrest. Looking at upper airway respiratory emergencies as well as the lower airway respiratory emergencies. So if a student does not know how respiratory failure occurs or cannot explain how to manage it, that eventual candidate will not only be ill-prepared for the exam, they will also not be prepared to take care of a patient in the out-of-hospital setting. The goal of the exam is to protect the public. It then is incumbent on the course instructors to assure the information is presented in a logical manner. That the information is then tested at the classroom level throughout the program and then again at the end of the program. This is really the only way, at least right now, that we can assess to see whether or not the student is going to be a viable candidate for the exam. Now, in Pennsylvania, EMTs are capable and able to utilize CPAP, carry epinephrine pens, and obtain blood glucose levels. While this may be specific to Pennsylvania today, it is not in the national EMS scope of practice. Well, it is now, but at the recording of this, it has not taken effect. So therefore, it's not going to be tested in that manner. Likewise, at the AEMT level in New Mexico, there are more skills an EMT, or I'm sorry, an AEMT can perform, which are not recognized at the national level. Now, while these areas are important for instructors to teach and the student to know each one of those, they, they can't expect to see these things on the national exam. Now, the most recent national EMS scope of practice was released for official publication in 2019 from the National Association of State EMS Officials. Now, they've caught a lot of this information up to date to what the states are currently allowing providers to do. However, there are some areas in which content will need to be developed and taught to meet the national needs. You know, as an example, when you get into cardiovascular issues, in the 2019 National Scope of Practice, the EMT is expected to know how to acquire a 12-lead EKG and transmit it. This is not, nece not necessarily found in current textbooks. So course faculty will need to be aware of these changes in the content for the future. Will this need addressed with the student you are remediating? Something to seriously give consideration about. If you wait for the information to appear in a textbook, it may be too late. Instructors then must work with their coordinator or their program director, as well as a medical director, to address these curriculum needs. So how does one then determine what kind of treatment is expected? This is a great question. Because you don't want to just pull up state protocols and say, here's what you need to do. We're not teaching people to be cookbook medics. So one of the things you can do is to go back and take a look at what resources you have. So 
what can you do? Because this question is brought up by instructors all the time and students as well. Initially, we often rely on what the textbook indicates is the expected or proper treatment. Now, when you reach specialty areas, such as resuscitation science for cardiac arrest and stroke, you have to reference the most current version of the Emergency Cardiac Care Guidelines from the American Heart Association, or ILCOR, International Consensus on Resuscitation. Now, when questioning some specific trauma areas, making references to textbooks from PHTLS, which is based on the advanced trauma life support course that physicians take, and that also then breaks down to the advanced trauma nurse course that the nurses take. So it makes sense that everybody is together. Finally, additionally, the current standards of care based on evidence-based criteria can be found in the National Model EMS Treatment Guidelines from the National Association of EMS Physicians. And you can find this available right on their website at naemsp.org. The use of social media to determine the standards of care is not considered reputable and really is not considered reliable. Now, while there's a lot of merit with foam, which is um, free online access for medical education, some of these references are going to need to be checked to confirm for accuracy. Now, again, at the, re at the making of this podcast, it's time I'm recording it. Those things can change real quick because as we're finding out, foam has the ability to have peer-reviewed open access medicine. So it's not always just about a blog or a podcast. Uh, it could be something that is coming maybe from the Scandinavian Journal on Trauma, Resuscitation, and Emergency Medicine, which is peer-reviewed and open resource. And the best of all, it's free. Anyway, I digress about that. So where does a candidate find out where they are struggling? If they have not been successful in the National Registry Cognitive, or I'm sorry, Computer Adaptive Exam, CAT, well, this is a great question because the struggling candidate is not alone. It has the information necessary to help themselves. Usually, though, in the heat of the moment, when they see that they were not successful, this is where their, their initial part comes up and says, I'm done. But as an instructor, you must remind the candidate that when they log into the, your, their National Registry account, they are provided with a breakdown of their performance. Now, one of the other things that I will bring up is that if you are the program coordinator or the program director and you have access and you've created the account for your institution, you have this information available as well provided that they are in your program or were in your program. Now, the information that I just referred to is not kept a secret, and I'll do my best to explain the computer adaptive testing process. Um, and I will also then refer you to the National Registry website for more information. And after all, this is where I was able to obtain it. And you can also check out the 10-minute 10-minute minute medic podcast from Dr. Bill Young on slaying the National Registry test dragon. And I'm going to put those inside the show notes for links so that you can go ahead and take a look at those as well. But the National Registry utilizes a computer adaptive test. Now, just as the name says, it is a test which is on a computer and is adaptive. Well, what does that mean? 
Basically, it delivers one question at a time to the candidate. Based on the candidate's response, the next question is pulled from the queue. The questions must be answered when the student is given the question. There is no ability to skip the question and come back to it later. Additionally, each question is rated to determine its levels above, at, or its levels below the competency line. This allows the candidate to be tested to their maximum ability with the information. This is currently the process used for all levels except the AEMT level, which still utilizes what is referred to as a linear-based exam, which is essentially a paper and pencil exam placed on a computer. That is most likely what most candidates are used to. So when a candidate receives their results in their account, it is either a pass or a fail. If it is a pass, the candidate receives the official certifications, or I'm sorry, certificates and cards in the mail, and that's it. Now, if a student is not successful, they're not going to have the opportunity to retake that exam for 14 days. This is the cool-off period. It allows the student the opportunity to review the material that was not up to standard. Now, again, in their National Registry account, the candidate is provided with a breakdown of their performance. This is broken down to above the standard, near the standard, or below the standard. So what the heck does all this mean? Well, this goes back to the CAT process, or again, that computer adaptive testing process. There is no percentage. Again, there is no percentage. So the students are not going to get, or I'm sorry, the candidates are not going to get a percentage. And by the way, the students, or sorry, I keep calling them students, the candidates who have passed are not going to get a score. It's either pass or fail. So there is no percentage with this type of exam. A minimum entry level competency level has already been established through the test development process. So let's look at it this way. If you are attempting to put a high jump team together, if you knew to win at the state level and compete at the national level, you needed to be sure your team members could all clear seven feet. Your team tryouts would need to assure that at least everyone would need to perform to the standard to be on the team. If a potential team member was not able to clear the seven foot mark, say after 20 tries, there's no point in continuing the tryout since they have not achieved the minimum standard at all. Now, if another potential team member clears not just the minimum mark, but also clears eight feet consistently, again, there's no point in continuing their tryout either because they've demonstrated their ability to perform above the standard. Now, the ones that you really have to take a look at are the ones who are performing right at that seven foot mark. Their performance is between maybe 6 foot 10 inches and 7 feet. And they've been provided 50 opportunities to meet the minimum standard. But because they have not been clearing that minimum standard enough, the coach decided they needed to practice just a little bit more before she feels confident to place them on the team. This is the equivalent of the near standard. What does this all mean for helping a student study? If the student results 
reveal he is above, or I'm sorry, if he is below or near the standards for three areas, these three areas need to be studied. Just because it is near does not mean it is okay to let this go. It is essentially like having the football on the half-yard line for three opportunities to cross the goal and finally making it on the fourth attempt to score. You know that the team is going to be practicing that situation in practice because they failed three of four times. Most people experience this frustration when they watch sports. This is where we're at today. We have to have a clear understanding to help our students out in their success for the National Registry exam. We have to have a clear understanding of what it means to be not just an instructor, but an educator in making sure that we're providing our students with the proper information. Without our ability to be able to help guide our students to success, they will just keep on spinning their wheels. So I think with that, I pretty much gave you a, a little overview of how we can start putting some remediation together for our students. And if you're a student, hopefully you can go back and realize that flashcards are maybe a great thing. But what does it mean when somebody says congestive heart failure? Can you describe the condition to me? And not just the signs and symptoms. So with that said, um, this is going to wrap up another Tim's Takeaway. And I hope to see you again or talk to you again on the next podcast. Take care.